myself a cigar the other day. Well, a couple of weeks ago, actually. It was in uh, anticipation of certain events which have since come to pass. And today I decided it was a good day to smoke it. And also, that made me think of uh, another book to talk about. Mm. Now, the book I really want to talk about um, well, it's not really Pulp Fiction, it's non-fiction. It goes with the cigar. Personal memoir of Ulysses S. Grant. I'm not much of a cigar smoker, like once or twice a year, tops, maybe three or four times when I was actually leaving the house. But, wanting to smoke a cigar to commemorate a certain victory, Ulysses S. Grant, uh, made me think about Sore losers and uh, winners who get, uh, what's the word, slandered and lied about uh, by the people who just can't accept that they got their asses kicked. So, can't really do uh, the personal memoirs of Ulysses S. Grant, but a very good writer named Ev Ehrlich wrote a book that's essentially a, a, a satire, a pastiche of Grant's memoirs called Grant speaks. The, the premise is that Grant wrote a less polite, more truthful memoir uh, before he wrote the one that became a runaway bestseller and is widely regarded as one of the great nonfiction works of all time. Go watch the National Geographic uh, miniseries from earlier this year, which was excellent. And we clearly dealt with a lot of the, uh, a lot of the false mythology about Grant. Uh, one of the frustrating things if you're a student of history, and particularly if you're a student of that period of history, is how many distortions about it uh, are widely believed. Uh, this is not an accident. This is a thing that was very, 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 very intentionally done. Propaganda effort that stretches from the earliest days of Reconstruction to the film Gone with the Wind, still the most popular box office champ of all time and it's complete racist horseshit. It is, I can't help with that. What Grant Speaks is supposed to be Grant telling the unvarnished truth in an impolite way. And I wanted to read a couple of, uh, a couple of bits from it. One of them is the first. If you don't know his story, um, well, we can start at the end, which is that after saving the Union in the Civil War by defeating Lee, Grant was president a couple of times, had an incredibly corrupt administration because he put faith in a lot of terrible, terrible people. He was not a great judge of personal character. He liked someone, he liked them, and it took a lot to convince him they were crooks. Uh, but uh, he got wiped out financially. And the only way for him to come back was to write his memoirs, which happened at around the same time that he got a diagnosis of fatal uh, throat cancer from the cigar. This first part deals with that. And I overall about Grant Speaks, I want to say that as someone who studied this history a lot, aside from a couple of very obvious conceits of the author, which are meant to be 
easily identified as fantasies, uh, historical fantasy. The history in this book is remarkably good, and even the way in which he captures Grant's voice. Uh, Grant was very smart, he was very funny, and he was a terrific writer, <clears throat> which anyone who's read the memoirs can attest. And uh, Ehrlich does a really good job with Grant's voice, perhaps saltier than he ever would have been, but, you know, alone with Mark Twain, maybe. Anyway, introduction by the author, Ulysses S. Grant, General of the Army and 18th President of the United States of America. To begin with, I'm dying. I first had trouble swallowing a year ago. Now the lump I couldn't swallow is swallowing me. When it was the size of a pea, I sought out my doctor, who sent me to a prestigious fellow proficient in excising pea-sized lumps. By the time that fellow returned from vacation, my pea was the size of an almond, <sighs> which was larger than his proficiency. Instead, he referred me to a renowned practitioner in New York, who was away in pra Paris, practicing, but who would see me when he returned. By the time he did, my almond was the size of a walnut. And so a race ensued between the size of the lump in my throat and the stature of the doctors who were unavailable to treat it. In the end, the lump won. Sometimes I think it would po be poetic justice if I sought out Dr. Frederick Savefammer, who already had once saved the life of Ulysses Grant some 20 years before at Shiloh, even if neither he nor Ulysses Grant realized it at the time. My doctor calls my lump epithelial in character, apparently the learned term for what you get when you smoke 20 cigars a day for 20 years. I didn't smoke cigars until the capture of Fort Donaldson, when a newspaper man, which my volatile friend Sherman used to say is another word for traitor, took a picture of me, cigar in hand. It wasn't even lit. But it was the first victory of the Civil War, and when people saw the picture, they started sending me cigars, boxes and barrels of them. It would have been wasteful not to smoke the ones I couldn't give away. So I did. In the end... It was the same old story. My fame killed me. There's nothing new in that. Every famous person is killed by his fame one way or another, sooner or later. Look at Lincoln. He was God's own yokel, all ears and knuckles and Adam's apple. I remember when he came to visit me in City Point in 64. We were encamped on the James River, laying siege to Petersburg and Richmond. He came off the boat wearing that stovepipe hat of his. At 67 inches, I couldn't have picked a penny off the top of it if I jumped like a trained monkey. I thought the wily old goat would live forever. He floated through every public moment, uttering his righteous visions of humanity. And then, in private, he would laugh and drawl like the true cracker barrel sitabout he was. He's dead now. Killed by his own fame. Although fate certainly had a helping hand that night. If he'd stayed home in Illinois and lawyered, he'd have died a rich old man in his own bed. But like he once told me, once those president grubs start burrowing, they can't be driven out. Or Lee, the soul of genteel nobility. That sacrimonious little mama's boy. He was the only fellow ever to graduate West Point without a single bad conduct mark. I had 290. A normal lad share of them. And I was a choir boy compared to Sherman, or for that matter, that lightning-struck farm boy Stonewall Jackson. This long before he, too, turned on his country. Well, I whipped Lee's hind end. Like a mule, regardless of what a good boy he was, I shook his hand properly at Appomattox, and they still talk about how magnanimous I was in victory.
I shouldn't have been magnanimous. I couldn't have punished him any more than he punished himself. Lee was so distraught after he got beat that he moped and fussed and died of a broken heart only five years later. They tell me he was still fighting the war in his deathbed, calling to A.P. Hill to bring his line up. But no matter how often he did, they kept on whipping him. It was more than his overburdened heart could take. Lincoln, Lee, Jackson, Zach Taylor, my man Rollins, all of them. I'll be joining them soon. But rather than dying quietly and privately the way even the simplest man with something epithelial gets to die, I'm dying in public view here in this book. Spectacle. I'm dying this way because I'm broke, busted, just as I always was. My father's always said I had no business sense. Even when I was saving the Union, the old jackal probably wished I was a proper merchant instead. Sad to say he was right. I never did have a head business. I lost money in Galena, in Sackett's Harbor, in Alaska, in St. Louis, in Vancouver, in California, on Wall Street. Everywhere somebody else was making money, they were making it off me. This book is the only business venture I have ever devised where my downside is covered. I can't lose money as I write. All I can lose is time. But then again, I'm running out of that too. And now I want to jump to uh, chapter 11. Just a little piece of this. When I found this book in a bookstore, I picked it up and randomly flipped to a page, and this was the page I flipped to, and it made me decide to buy the book instantly. Mm. A decision I did not choose, did not end up regretting. I still hear it today. Grant was a butcher. He was lucky. He had superior numbers. He was outsmarted by Lee every step of the way. Choir of know-it-alls. We'll offer every explanation for Bobby Lee's surrender in McLean's parlor at Appomattox except for the obvious one. I whipped him, and I whipped him good. I'm not bragging. I'm not boasting, and I'm not making any undue claims. I don't ask for credit beyond that one simple fact. Nobody beat him but me. But they still talk behind my back, and I'll tell you why. It was because I was a tanner's boy who began the war commanding a regiment of unruly Illinois farm boys while Lee was Martha Washington's grandson-in-law and began the war commanding Winfield Scott's admiration. The flower of chivalry, I called him. But I didn't care what people thought about him any more than I cared what they thought about me. I simply did the job they asked me to do, and if somebody doesn't like the way I do it, he can count the number of stars on the flag waving over his head and thank me when he gets past 30. By the spring of 1864, when I was made lieutenant general, the Army of the Potomac had crossed the Rapidan River on its way to Richmond six times, and six times it was pushed back. My job was to ensure that it would not be pushed back a seventh time. We were badly positioned, but if Lee was ready, so was I. I would rather have had Sherman in command of the Army of Potomac in Meade's place, but politics dictated otherwise. And so Meade kept his job. I turned Meade's men to face Lee's, and they fought bravely, but the terrain worked against them. Actually, it worked against everybody. It was hardly a battle between two trained armies. It was more a gathering of two opposing swarms set loose in the woods to kill each other. Bodies, dead or wounded, fell to the leafy ground as shots came in all directions. That's what Lee, the flower of chivalry, wanted. Carnage. Count the number of stars on the flag over your head, and when you get to 30, thank me. That made me laugh out loud when I read it for the first time. And, uh... I recommend the book. Uh, I think it's pretty obvious what the uh, non-historical conceits are in it. 
uh, but otherwise it is a very funny comic history of the Civil War and uh, very, very worth reading. Equally re worth reading, of course, is uh, even more so worth reading is Grant's memoirs, which are fascinating and thoughtful. And uh, he, Grant never quite got the, uh, because he was generally a quiet man in public, he never quite got the respect for his intellect that I think was deserved. And one of the things I love about that passage from Grant Speaks there's something so quintessentially American about Grant and about the fact that everything you've heard about him, about him being a drunk, about him only winning because he had superior numbers, about him being a butcher, is all in that paragraph. It's because he was born middle class, well, middle, middle class. And Robert E. Lee was born as rich as humanly possible at the time, related to American royalty, the Washingtons, married into the family. And uh, so we get this image of Lee the Cavalier and Grant the Butcher. If you look at the numbers on the battlefield, there was plenty of butchery on Robert E. Lee's side, too. But all that to say, here's to winning. And here's to not being a sore loser. See you next time, kids. For more information, visit PendantAudio.com. Thanks for listening.